0: Hello everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do during the SALT Talk series is replicate the type of experience that we provide at our global conference series, the SALT Conference. And that is really to provide a window into the minds of subject matter experts, as well as to provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And and none of our talks fully encompass our entire mission, as well as I think our talk today uh, will encompass that mission. We're very excited to welcome David Halpert and Mark Matthews to SALT Talks. And the the focus of today's conversation is gonna be on digital decolonization, which is a term and a concept that we'll get into more depth in during the talk Uh, But it's a fascinating term that was coined by David, uh, who who is the founder of Prince Street Capital Management. So uh, David Halper is the founder, portfolio manager, and chief investment officer for Prince Street, which is a specialist uh, emerging and frontier market asset management firm based in New York and Singapore. And I believe David is coming to us today from uh, one of his homes in Bali. Uh, So we're very excited about that. With 30 years of experience researching and investing in the developing world, David coined the term that I mentioned previously, digital decolonization, which is a new paradigm for assessing investments in emerging and frontier markets. He unveiled the concept in 2019 in a a brilliant white paper that I would encourage you to go check out, and we'll talk about it more on today's talk. Uh, Prior to founding Prince Street in 2001, David managed a long-only emerging markets portfolio, at uh, Zeziger Capital Group and worked in Indonesia as an equity research analyst. Uh, Mark Matthews, our other guest today, is the head of research for Asia Pacific at Julius Baer, um, an appointment he's had since June of 2011. His research coverage comprises single stock sector and select country analysis. In addition, he is a member of the bank's investment committee, uh, which determines asset allocation recommendations to all of its clients. Mark has held senior positions managing the research and equity sales functions at financial institutions, including ING Bearing Securities, Standard & Poor's, and Merrill Lynch in Asia. A reminder, if you have any questions for David or Mark during today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's interview is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that i'll turn it over to anthony for the interview
1: well uh, john thank you and it's a, a great honor to have you both on uh, i don't know if you've seen any of these uh, before but uh mark and david we'd like to start with the uh, the non-wikipedia question so what what can we learn about you guys that we wouldn't necessarily learn from wikipedia or doing a google search why don't we start with you mark uh tell us Tell us something about yourself that got you started and why you ended up doing what you're doing for a career.
2: Uh, There's no Wikipedia for me anyway. So I'll just tell you, I guess the thing that um, you're looking for, at least what pops in my head is most people come out to Asia, I've been in Asia for 31 years, uh, to make money, and I didn't. I came out here because my father uh, was a professor of religious studies, and he specialized in uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. And so from a a, a very young age, uh, I just had an Asian bug, and um, I still do. I think it's the most interesting place in the world, and there's actually no place I'd rather be. Tell, tell
1: uh, Before I go to David, tell us why. Uh, tell us for people at I agree with you, actually. I love coming to Asia. I love being a part of that culture. Uh, but for Americans that have not had that experience, tell us why you feel that way.
2: Oh, well, that's a tough one. I think it's um, just so exotic. You know, I, I think it's uh, that's what turns me on. It's, a, it's just a very exotic a place. And the other thing I would say that, that pops into my mind is uh, vibrancy. Um, there's just so much going on. Uh, I guess you can get that in Manhattan, uh, but you get that big time in cities you, like Jakarta you, and Bangkok. You can't
1: get that. In, you can't get that in Manhattan anymore. I mean, I'm 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 in my office today, and uh, it is a work day, and you could blow a cannonball down that street and not hurt anybody, unfortunately. But uh, maybe it'll sad. change again. Right, well, David. Good, I, I, David. I'm loving the outfit, by the way. You get the be, you get the most exotically dressed of the four of us on the Salt Talk. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, your ventures and tell us where you are right now. Tell us where you're located.
3: So, I'm currently uh, at the Bali Pranati Center of the Arts, which is uh, the art center that my wife built here about 15 years ago. Uh, and which we use as a concert space and a conference space uh, during normal times. Uh, At the moment, with the COVID crisis, uh, of course, there's essentially no tourism in Bali. So uh, I'm here in part uh, for morale uh, in the island because people have been worried about their jobs, unfortunately. Uh, But uh, it's been a great Uh, a great time to be here uh, because there's obviously no traffic and uh, we're able to really enjoy, uh, you know, Bali the way it used to be. Uh, I came to Asia around the same time Mark did, uh, essentially looking for uh, career opportunities and it served me very well, uh, continuously. And I've gotten to participate as an investor and as an analyst in uh, some of the most dramatic wealth creation over the last 20 and 30 years, uh, this happened anywhere. Uh, interestingly, of course, there's been a lot of questions about whether Asia is now done either because of the breakdown in globalization from world trade or because of the US-China uh, problems. And clearly, you know, Singapore, Indonesia, you know, they're having a, a recession this year but I, I've been impressed as I look around Indonesia by how much opportunity still there is for growth and uh, improvement in people's lives, improvement in uh, the efficiencies of things like transportation and manufacturing. Uh, so I'm really quite optimistic for the future here.
1: So you, you, you've developed this new paradigm that... Uh you're calling, and the markets are calling digital decolonization. So for, for those of us on this uh, SALT talk that don't really know what that means, and I actually think it's a fascinating perspective on what's happening in the world right now, what's happening likely in the post-COVID world, tell us what digital decolonization is and tell us what the investment opportunity is as a result of it. So for Americans, the
3: most dramatic example of digital decolonization would be the banning of TikTok uh and India banned TikTok a few weeks before the U.S. moved to ban TikTok but there is a sense really all over the world including in the United States that cross-border technology companies playing such a big role in people's lives uh whether their financial lives or their social and political lives is problematic and I don't know whether it's gonna be as absolute as banning and blocking and all the stuff that's currently under discussion or it's gonna be in more subtle mechanisms such as uh, preferential logistical support to the, go- the local e-commerce company against a foreign e-commerce company. But I continue to see virtually every day, more evidence that we're not gonna have the huge concentration of wealth and power in just five, 10 companies, uh, that it looked two, three years ago as if we might have. And uh, if you look at what's happened with Reliance Industries in India, where RGO has now attracted investments from Facebook, Google, and potentially soon Amazon. I I think that's a classic example of the digital decolonization movement, where Uh, uh, financial investment is enabling the development of a local Indian e-commerce, social networking, uh, financial services powerhouse. And even more recently than that, three days ago on the Warsaw Stock Exchange in Poland, you saw the IPO of Allegro, which is an $11 billion company. And in three days that stock has doubled. And Allegro is kind of the Amazon of Poland, but that in Poland, which is not that big a country and not that big economy, you can already have a $24 billion e-commerce company. I mean, that tells me that uh, we are going to see my 1.5 trillion target in terms of digital decolonization market cap over the next five, 10 years.
1: So... So, so basically, there are companies that are around the world that are similar to these five companies, uh, but they are indigenous, if you will, to that local area that are going to be magnificent. So let me, let me ask David, uh, how, do, how do those companies create commerce? Will it be globalized like the American companies or will it be local markets? Uh, David, how do, you, how do you envision that?
3: So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm here in Indonesia and I can speak m- most immediately to what I see on the street here, uh, but I believe it's largely the same as what you would experience in Poland or experience in Argentina or experience uh, in India. The big global multinationals, whether Chinese or American, don't really serve the local customer as well as a local company can. Uh, They don't stock the same local range of products in their e-commerce offerings. They don't provide as deep a catalog of local language film. They don't teach the online learning program to the local educational exam. Uh, and so it's a breakdown in this aggressive digital globalization that we saw uh, really from around 2009 to around 2016. Uh, and of course, there are going to be many things that are going to be completely globalized, whether it's 5G technology or GSM technology or Android or whatever, that there, there, there will be Many things that will be shared across markets, but I don't think it will be as concentrated in just a couple of companies as was previously expected. So, so Mark, so,
1: so, Mark, how would we, how, how would you invest at Julius Baer in what David is is talking about, this this future vision for w- world technological commerce?
2: Well, uh, what I'd try to do is to get David's funds on our platform because he's a very good fund manager. But uh, the other thing obviously you can do is uh, find these companies yourself. And um, David uh, basically was talking about uh, a few like one recent IPO in, in Poland. The problem right now in the emerging markets, excluding China, is that if you're lucky, each country has one or maybe two. Uh, India is a good case in point. I mean, India is, by emerging market standards, a massive market. There's really only one new economy um, stock, which is uh, Reliance Industries. Um, so what you could do is is build a basket of, of those local champions, uh, you know, pick one in, in every country. You've got one in Argentina, you've got one in Poland, you've got one in India, and you can probably add about... Uh, a dozen on top of that in, in other emerging markets. But the problem is that um, not all of them will be good. So I think, you you know, really this is a very special and I um, wanna say um, uh, this, this concept is just in its fruition uh, and, and actually it's David's concept. Um, and so apart from him, I don't really think there is any vehicle to go into this. Uh, then you're left with building a basket by yourself and, and probably getting some rotten apples in there.
1: So, so David, the, the, sometimes the pushback in the U.S., and this is pro- primarily probably born from Federal Reserve interest rate policy, is that uh, the emerging markets have an appeal. They seem like they are going to be the arc of future growth, but yet they never get to the expectations that people set on them uh, uh, here in North America, and so what's what's different about this this time?
3: Well, uh, I can talk about that at some length, but uh, for example, Argentina has been a big disappointment, as you know, and lots of people have lost lots of money in stocks and even more so in bonds in Argentina. But if you bought Mercado Libre ten years ago and you sold it today, you've made more than 10 times your money in US dollars. So the tech thing seems to be so powerful that it overwhelms the macro problems of the country. And that's even borne out in the price action of the NASDAQ stocks in the US. The US economy is in deep trouble, yet NASDAQ is close to an all-time high. So I think investors at the moment, at least, are willing to look through the short-term macroeconomic disappointment of emerging or developed markets uh, toward this future. Now, maybe these are uh, investors are wrong. It's a different subject, but uh, it, this thing so far has worked really well. Uh, now, I would also say to the fact that emerging markets continue to disappoint. I think emerging markets on average disappoint, but several emerging markets have actually exceeded people's expectations over the longer term. So China and Taiwan both have uh, proven to be remarkably successful economies over the long term uh, and are now basically developed countries. Uh, And there have been other smaller examples around the world, Poland has done very well, uh, where a a long-term investor has made a lot of money even in the old economy companies. So it's not that bad. But yes, on average, you know, lending money to the government of Argentina is a
1: very risky decision. Yeah, well, they've, they've devalued seven times in the last 20 years. so I think that's one of the one of the issues that gets people worried. Uh, Mark, what what's your take? Uh, uh, explain to our American listeners right now the opportunity in India and China, how you see the world over there. And what are Americans missing that may not be traveling as much as the two of you?
2: So I think what I'd I'd begin by saying is that um, the emerging markets, and that includes Asia, have been a tremendous opportunity cost in aggregate over the last 10 years. Um, So when you just look at the recent history of uh, these markets, you would say, why would I bother? Because China, for example, MSCI China dollars, including dividends, has given you an annual return of 7% over the last 10 years, Uh, S&P is twice that. And uh, there I would say that, you know, just like in America, every decade is different in terms of the performance of sectors and and you'll find that there's there's massive rotation in stocks that go to the top of the S&P 500. Every single decade, they're different. Um, I I think in the emerging markets, uh, the next 10 years um, will be that way too. In fact, I know it will because Uh, 10 years ago, 80% of the MSCI China index was what you'd call old economy companies. So banks, um, oil and gas, uh, materials, um, petrochemicals, that kind of stuff. And um, what happened was in 2018, uh, new economy companies like technology, telecommunications, healthcare, uh, they surpassed the old economy stocks in uh, their weighting in the index. And today they're about 70% and old economy are about 30%. So um, that intuitively means companies with much higher returns on equity and much higher earnings growth. And uh, if you just look at uh, the Shiller PE, which uh, I'm sure you know, Anthony, provides you a really long-term, it's, it's been quite a reliable indicator for long-term Uh, performance, 10-year performance. It's inferring about 9% per year for China over the coming 10 years. And by the way, it's inferring, based on today's uh, ratio for the U.S., 4% per year for the U.S. So um, I think uh, that's what I want to say. And I also want to say that right now uh, there's only kind of one new economy stock in each of the emerging markets outside China um, but uh, that won't be the case three, four, five years from now. And um, a, a lot of these countries, their markets will mature into, um, I think, uh, much more sophisticated, interesting markets as far as the, the major composites are concerned, uh, largely because... Uh, You know, in the old days, if you wanted to be successful as a as a uh, technology uh, person, you basically had to go to Silicon Valley. And today you don't. You can stay in India. You can stay in in Thailand. There's there's a lot to do on the ground in all of these countries.
1: You know, and it's a fascinating time because Americans feel like they're looking inward, at least the political leadership. Uh, And so, David, let me ask you this. Uh, political saber rattling, ongoing trade tensions, uh, whether it's a Trump second administration or a first Biden administration, what do you think the role of U.S. geopolitics is uh, in terms of how it's going to affect the outside world or will it not have any impact on the outside world?
3: So, Anthony, of course, this is... This is a huge question and and still pretty unclear in either of the outcomes. Uh, But I would tell you what I see in my companies is that they are preparing for the supply chain to split anyway. So Taiwan Semiconductor recently announced a $12 billion investment into a state-of-the-art manufacturing facility in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I believe that will be the single largest foreign manufacturing investment in the United States announced during the Trump administration. Uh, That investment is being undertaken with a plan to begin production in 2025. So they are looking through this current era in history and saying, we still need to have a huge fab in the US. So that tells me that that company at least thinks the supply chain is splitting. And many of the other manufacturing companies that I talk to are signaling to greater or lesser extent that this is their base case. Uh, so companies that depend on cross trans shipment of complicated manufacturing uh, chains, uh, I think, have to adjust to this new reality.
1: Uh, in in but- hindsight, And this is sort of a question for both of you. In in hindsight, would America have been better off uh, ratifying and signing the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership?
3: What do you think? Mark's Canadian. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, I feel that um, one of Donald Trump's legacies um, will be that he um, Started a process that was long overdue. Of, um, of, uh, I don't really, you know, it's it's such a tough thing to to just say in a sentence, but I'm sure you know what I mean. There was a very lopsided relationship whereby China was charging far higher tariffs on imports from the U.S. than in reverse. Those were tariffs that dated from when it entered the World Trade Organization in 2001, and it was a uh, you know, less than a $3 trillion economy, and, and, and people were very poor, and um, it was in need of adjustment. Um, and the TPP, I guess, is, is, a, is, a, is a sort of tangent to that, but um, the, 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 um, the idea, I think, that uh, the U.S. Um, let too much leave the country, uh, my humble opinion, is correct. And therefore, uh, some kind of rebalancing um, was uh, overdue. And it's happening. David, uh, why don't you take over? So the
3: irony of it is that the TTPP was actually quite a sophisticated document. And it was a more sophisticated document than, for example, NAFTA, uh, which was written before the, the a lot of changes in the economy. Uh, I think TPP in retrospect would have served the interests of the United States quite well. Uh, I think the US, Canada, Mexico agreement that uh, this administration uh, negotiated and which Canada uh, seems on track to ratifying uh, is probably a better agreement than what NAFTA was. Uh, I like requiring that Mexican auto Factories pay sixteen dollars an hour. I think that's a very reasonable, uh, a very reasonable request. Uh, but uh, the TPP was what very few people have actually read the TPP, and and I have, uh, and it, it was a sophisticated, subtle, twenty-first century uh, document. But politically, it just wasn't viable, and you know that's that. Uh, I, I listened to Condoleezza Rice. Uh, talking at a JP Morgan conference a couple of days ago, and she had an interesting term. She said, the American people are tired. And uh, whether she's right or not, and whether they should be tired or not, uh, I think that is increasingly uh, becoming consensus in Washington about globalization and about the military, uh, expansion around the world and the free trade uh, uh, culture. So if you're GSM, you take a billion dollars and you build a factory in Phoenix Arizona and you solve that problem. If you're Samsung you already have a factory you just increase the size of the factory that you have. If you're Huawei You probably are not building a factory in the United States. You're probably planning your distribution to focus on the markets where you're going to be welcome, uh, which include Indonesia. Uh, I'm not encouraging uh, Indonesian entrepreneurs to plan a big export push at this point. I think that we need to look again at the domestic market here, the domestic market in India the domestic market in Asia, uh, which is still ludicrously underdeveloped.
1: So when you, when, you, when you lay out that macro backdrop, and again, this would be a question for both of you, how do you feel about the US dollar right now directionally? Where do you think the US dollar will go over the next five to 10 years?
2: Um, why don't I try that first? Um, now the thing is that if we're just talking about the dollar index two-thirds of that is the euro and on a five-year view i feel i'd much rather have my money in dollars than euros uh because i see europe in bigger trouble i i see uh persistent malaise in their society uh which percolates through into their economy and uh an economy which is so export oriented anyway that it's sort of naturally structured to to uh, to demand a weaker currency. And uh, no no really strong leadership coming up after Angela Merkel, unless Macron can somehow take over as the leader of Europe, but I doubt the Germans are gonna let him do that. So anyway, if we're just talking about the dollar index, um, I would be uh, perfectly happy uh, owning uh, the dollar index. But um, if we're talking about different crosses, then I guess the one I'll just mention, and then I'll pass it over to David, would be uh, the dollar renminbi. And um, I think the renminbi um, will appreciate. Um, they just impo- uh, they just relaxed some um, reserve requirement ratios on onshore forex trading um, a couple of days ago, because uh, I had appreciated 7% since May it was a bit too fast for them. but But I think that they're focusing internally. Uh, the new catchphrase is um, "inner loop," or there's a variety of different ways you can translate it, but essentially means weaning ourselves off of export uh, of uh, imports from uh, from uh, from, uh, from uh, overseas, and developing our domestic economy more. Um, and um, they 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 I think they will welcome uh, over time a stronger renminbi. Um, They've done a lot to get into the FTSE Russell global bond index recently, for example, which will uh, naturally, uh, uh, you know, cause a lot of money to go into China just to achieve benchmark status in that index. And um, I believe that a lot more people are going to be buying Chinese stocks over the next five years, too. I think it's rising to core core status in in global portfolios. It was always sort of a, a tactical thing before. So um, that's that's what I think. And uh, David, over to you.
3: I'm a big fan of haircuts as a way to measure currency competitiveness. And uh, I would say one of the most expensive places in the world to get a haircut right now is Geneva. Uh, and it's, Europe in general still feels quite, quite expensive at one Euro 20, I think. Uh, but getting a haircut in Shanghai or getting a haircut in Singapore or getting a haircut in Indonesia is much, much cheaper. So, on a long term basis, there still is a lot of structural undervaluation in the currencies in Asia, in particular to a lesser extent uh, in Latin America. And that suggests to me that while The Fed and all that can can cause another round of devaluations if necessary. Uh, You know, there is a long term value story for diversifying out of the U.S. dollar. Europe would not necessarily be my first stop.
1: Well, guys, I'm going to turn it over to John because we have a ton of questions coming up in the queue, uh, which I think are uh, fascinating. So John Darcy, take it away.
0: Yeah, we, we have several follow-up questions about the digital decolonization theme. Um, you know, going back to DigDec, which is you know the, the shorthand for digital decolonization, is that a strategy just for technology companies? How does it factor in the service sector? Or is it, you know, what's the investable universe in terms of innovation uh, as part of that digital decolonization theme?
3: John, thank you for that question. I mean, I, I should have been clear at the beginning. Uh, digital decolonization is not limited just to the technology sector. Uh, The data revolution, the digital revolution is currently impacting almost every aspect of economic life, whether from the wearables manufacturing sector or the uh, services like financial services, travel services, education services, the power sector, the infrastructure sector, all of these are sectors where uh, data and more sophisticated use of technology and innovation are increasing productivity and providing better services to customers at better about crisis. So we view this revolution as uh, not limited to any one sector. Uh, and indeed, too much in the, in the NASDAQ, uh, the NASDAQ stuff has done great this year, it did great last year, but too much of that may not be the ideal way to express this idea going forward. Uh, I'm particularly interested right now with the energy transition, which I continue to see gaining momentum right around the world. Uh, and that is much less hyped than the e-commerce space, for example. Uh, and there's still a lot of opportunity. Do you know, for here in Southeast Asia, only 2% of the electricity grids are renewable? Wow. Uh, and just growing that out is gonna create a huge opportunity in, in, in uh, distributed power and uh, power tech related investments in this part of the world.
0: Mark, I have a different question for you from the audience, and and it goes back to your comments about the trade relationship between the United States and Asia. And I think some of this digital decolonization, and David, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is driven by the fact that there's increasing nationalism from a commercial perspective. So do you think a closed United States, which I think the horse is sort of out of the barn in terms of the United States and the popularity of policies that are trying to bring manufacturing home, and, and restore working class jobs in the United States. Do you think a more closed United States is a catalyst for uh, increasing performance of assets in emerging markets, especially around this digital decolonization theme?
2: I'm not sure there's a direct link, although intuitively they sh- there should be, um, simply because, um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I I guess what you mean is if the United States closes itself off and um, and uh, and therefore you would expect, you know, uh, To be a much less appealing place to invest in relative terms, the rest of the world would be more attractive. I I guess I see that but um, What I would just say is by the way, um, the the trade war and uh, the digital economy are very separate things. Uh, services aren't counted in, in these trade uh, balances. Um, and uh, I, I, when you're talking about America cutting itself off or, or turning inward, um, I, I still believe that, that there is and should be a place for manufacturing in America. I'm in Singapore um which is a, a a country with a i think a, a much greater per capita gdp than the united states and it's a very expensive place but the government still uh makes sure that manufacturing is around 20 percent of gdp because not everybody can be a barista at starbucks or a computer programmer at google there have to be jobs for uh other people and um I think there's a balance uh, that uh, governments need to to seek between uh providing those kind of jobs and and still uh remaining an open economy uh and every country will have a different line to walk but uh just to summarize i do think that um america's right actually to develop an economic policy that focuses on its middle class instead of uh multinational companies profits um and I think uh, at the same time, it can remain open, particularly as its service sector econ- uh, companies are, are really the, the, the giants in the world. Um, so that would be my answer to you.
0: So I wanna finish with a pretty broad question. And, and we had a speaker at SALT, our Abu Dhabi conference last December named Parag Khanna, who you might be familiar with. Uh, he's a prolific author on topics related mainly to Asia. His most recent- He
3: lives in Singapore. So yeah. we, we we both met him,
0: <laughs> but oh, he'll definitely be uh you know near the top of our list for Salt Bali 2022, which we'll we'll Great. teach to the, the people on this this call right now. But um, he wrote a book called The Future Is Asian, and I I found both his book and his speech at Salt extremely compelling. Talk about talking about the demographic shifts and the economic shifts that are taking place that make Asia so compelling as an investment destination. So. I want to talk about emerging markets with a focus on Asia. What are, first of all, risks to that thesis? What are the positives uh, that are maybe that exist in these emerging markets in Asia that aren't talked about or valued highly enough? And in general, what's your outlook for those markets over the next five to 10 years? We talked about how they've sort of underperformed if you paint with a broad brush over the last decade, but what's your outlook over the five, 10 year time horizon? We'll start with David and then we'll go to Mark.
3: So China's riding high, you know, if you notice price action after the U.S. presidential debate on September 29th, the Chinese stock market went straight up. So uh, it's pretty clear that in the short term, at least, China's going to be doing well uh, out of the dysfunction in the United States. Uh, Medium term, however, I think China is getting a bit... Tired. It's already quite wealthy. Their labor cost continues to move up. Uh, as the currency appreciates, they're losing competitiveness again to other markets like Vietnam and Bangladesh, uh, which are getting some of these low end labor intensive manufacturing jobs away from China. So I think select opportunities in China are still going to be great for the next 10 and 20 years. But China Inc, per se, I'm not that excited. India is a different story it's got uh, it's much earlier stage in most things uh, it is proving somewhat competitive in uh, manufacturing I would argue Bangladesh and Vietnam are more competitive uh, but they uh, there is just a huge amount of inefficiency in the Indian system whether the agricultural system the manufacturing system transportation system etc financial system so uh, Rationalizing India alone is a great 10-20 year project, and Indonesia is doing somewhere in between the two countries. But also, just rationalizing Indonesia will probably keep people busy here for 10-20 years, even if the U.S. shuts off completely.
2: So, so my more... uh,
0: answer the same question, if you would.
2: Sure. Um, First, what I would say, John, is you said the demographics are great. Well, for some countries they are, but um, not for China. In fact, by the end of this century, China's population will be half of India and the U.S. combined. Um, And I think even right now, the average Chinese is about the same age as the average American. But uh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the average Chinese will will be about, I think, 45 to 50 and the average American will still be, you know, about 35, somewhere around there. So anyway, that's beside the point. I said to Anthony in the beginning that I, I love it here. I still do uh, after 31 years, but um, one the comment I would make is, is a cultural one. I think um, that uh, the societies here, I guess I'm speaking more about East Asian societies. Um, in other words, Japan, Korea, China, Vietnam, uh, but you could probably also throw in Thailand and a couple of others as well. They're very um, communitarian. Is that a word? I mean, they're very—they—they they're, don't really allow uh, people to stand up and be wild and crazy. And um, and frankly, even where I'm from, Canada, we 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 can't uh, be as wild as cra- and crazy as people in America either. We're we're much more communitarian. I hope that's a word. Um, and I think that really allows the, the geniuses to blossom um, when, when they do have the ability to, to uh, come up with their crazy ideas and...
3: And express and, uh, themselves.
2: Yeah. yeah, and so, so I, I think that's something that's, that's lacking here culturally. Um, and it does, it does put a brake on innovation and creativity. Um, and so that would be my comment, John. Yeah, I
0: mean, uh, it's very interesting. You say that Anthony gave a talk to the US-China Business Council and, and he made that exact point that free expression and the ability to use your creative muscles is a, is a huge reason why the United States is such a home for entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, we have one more audience question that I want to ask to you, David, before we let you go. What is What are different types of DigDeck companies? Give us some examples across the spectrum of, of digital decolonization. And what does the IPO calendar look like in these emerging markets, and how does it reflect the growth of this digital decolonization theme? So the
3: IPO calendar looks great. Again, we just had Allegro in Poland on Monday. It already doubled and created $12 billion of incremental market cap in the last three days. Uh, we've got a Kazakhstan deal coming up next week. We've got Ant Financial, which is gonna be a $30 billion transaction. Uh, so there's tons of things going on in the IPO calendar. Uh, but uh, in terms of different kinds of companies, you know, technology, healthcare, power tech, tech, are the fintech are the five verticals we tend to be focused on right now. But I would expect all sorts of different applications of data science and et cetera over the next 10 and 20 years, or even less, five and 10 years. So uh, I just... I see a ton of opportunity in this. As We're, I said,
0: very excited. We're very excited from a SALT perspective, from a Skybridge perspective, to, to work with Prince Street, work with Julius Baer, and to continue to dig into the opportunities that exist in emerging markets. You know, it's, it's not a monolith. There's, there's different opportunities in different locations, for sure. Uh, and as you said, if you, if you are able to pick the right companies, uh, there's great opportunity, no matter how emerging markets as an asset class perform over the next five to 10 years. So thank you, thank you so much, David and Mark, for joining us on this SALT Talk. We look forward to revisiting these themes you know, maybe in a few months if there's a change in, uh, in American presidential administration as well to see how that affects things. But thank you so much for joining us. Anthony, do you have a final word?
1: Just, just so you guys know, John's trying to get out the valley in the worst possible way, so much so that he wants to do a SALT conference, David, right where you're sitting.
0: What, what's not to like? Bali's beautiful. There's a there's a great uh, burgeoning tech scene in Bali as well, and it, I think it fits we're, in well with that theme.
1: We're super excited about your future, uh, gentlemen, and uh, the future of the world. And we're we're looking forward to learning more about digital decolonization. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys.
3: Mark, sleep well, and uh, we, I really appreciate your taking the time to do this i us.
2: I'm I'm just honored that I could be here. Thank you. See you all in Bali in 2022.
3: Amen. Hopefully Amen. so.